Hello, we are back again in quarantine. This is Andy, Young Nassau County. This is Lord Estimita, standing in my personhood. We are back again with another heavy topic. We have another episode where we're exploring the impact of coronavirus on incarcerated people. Y'all, it's not just, you know, doctors or people on the front line that are being impacted. We have vulnerable populations of people in prisons in jails who are being impacted by coronavirus. And cases of coronavirus have spread quickly across prisons and jails due to unsafe conditions and lack of resources to protect those who are incarcerated. Medical officials at Rikers Island said that this is not a generational public health crisis. Rather, it is a crisis of a magnitude no generation living today has ever seen. They've called for the release of many, many vulnerable people from prisons as soon as possible. So to bring light to this issue, we sat down with lawyers and reform advocates, Lenora Easter, Wendy Jennings, and Anton Robinson to understand how coronavirus has been impacting those who are incarcerated. We also interviewed Tony Rosa about his experience being in prison during the coronavirus outbreak. We'd love for you to share this episode because it really highlights an extremely urgent issue that needs more attention. So with that being said, here's our interview with Lenora, Anton, Wendy, and Tony. Keep it locked. This is City Image. Well, hey, y'all. Welcome back to City Image. We are so excited to be once again talking to Anton Robinson, Wendy Jennings, and Lenora Easter. We have just been talking about criminal justice and shedding light to the issue, and now we're going to have a spin and thinking about it from the, the aspect of coronavirus. So thank y'all for coming back for a second episode. We're so excited to have you and to talk about this again. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. So we'd love to hear a bit about how coronavirus has been affecting people who are in prison and in jail, and, and just what exactly is going on to address that. Yeah. So a humanitarian crisis is unfolding in jails and prisons uh, right now. So when you think about the spread of the coronavirus, of which New York City is the epicenter, excuse me, the epicenter of the the crisis in America, um, you have to think about the cramped conditions inside of jails. You have to think about the number of people who are there. Jails historically haven't been the, the cleanest institutions for obvious reasons, close quarters. And so certainly is an environment where COVID-19 could spread and uh, there's evidence of that as well. So for example, the first recorded case in Rikers Island was on March 18th. Just five days later, uh, 38 people who were incarcerated uh, tested positive for COVID-19. It gives you, while we are all, you know, sort of in the same place um, in, in broader society in terms of how it's spreading, and we know it's spreading rapidly in our communities outside of jails, but it is a, a much steeper incline inside of jails and prisons. 
what is happening now is there's uh, you know, a lot of advocates are working because of that to get people out of jail as quickly as possible. And some of those efforts have led to the, in New York City, the jail population, that along with bail reform, has led to the jail population being uh, the lowest today than it's been since the 1940s. And so some of those efforts are working, but there's still more work that, that needs to be done to protect more people. It's hard to get a test on the outside, even harder to get a test inside the jails. Taking it back to what we were seeing in our first episode, Rikers is, an, is a place where individuals who are not convicted of any crimes are being held. So you have people technically that's innocent inside these four walls of these jails where this you know, virus is just spreading like a wildfire. And it's because of the conditions, the close quarters, you know, the non-sanitation and whatnot. Many defense bars um, on both the state and federal uh, level have done what we call mass writs. And what a writ is, I'm going to read a legal definition so that people know what that is. A writ is a legal definition, Lenore. (laughs) A writ is a document or what one would consider like a motion um, whereby an entity or a person is directing a court or a government official to take some sort of action. So there have been at least three mass writs. And what I mean by that is that in the, um, there were writs by uh, defense bars, legal aid, uh, Bronx defenders, New York County defenders, different defense organizations where they were asking that a number of individuals be released based on the coronavirus and certain conditions as far as like individuals who were more susceptible to getting the virus because they have pre-existing conditions or they're older or whatever the case may be. And then there were also individual writs that attorneys themselves were doing for their clients on a one-on-one basis with the judges. Now, right now the courts are closed. However, the court, it still acts um, accessible via virtual Skype, I should say. So these writs were being argued by attorneys via Skype with judges. Um, I can say, for example, one of the mass writs that were done in the Bronx was one asking that the court release 18 individuals who were incarcerated at Rikers Island based on coronavirus and the fact that they were susceptible to getting this virus or they either tested positive out of the 18 people that the, uh, the organization asked to be released three, the judge released three of them. One was given consideration for possible release and the other 14 were denied. The judge's premise for that was that, you know, DOC is doing the best that they can do. It's sad because yeah, maybe DOC is doing the best that they can do. Maybe, But at the same token, these are people's lives. And, you know, to date, I haven't heard of anyone that has actually like been a part of this writ and then has passed away. I, at least in the Bronx, I do believe that there's a case coming out in um, Harlem and Manhattan where that was the case. They asked that this individual be released. It was denied and this person subsequently died. Um, And so, you know, it's incumbent that judges take this serious. And a lot of times judges kind of fall on whatever the DA is saying. And it's sad that even some of the arguments from the DAs was like, well, people are going to die. I mean, yes, that's true. But 
for that to be the basis of your argument why a person shouldn't be released from Rikers who is not guilty of a crime at that point in time is just inhumane um, and it's just downright disgusting. Um, so writs are continuing to be done on a one-on-one basis. Um, I'm not sure if there's any more mass writs that are in the um, in the works at this point in time. But the defense bar, like I said, on the federal and the state level are, you know, working hard and have been working hard since the beginning of, you know, this becoming a huge issue um, to try to get people out of jail. This goes across systems, right? Because it, all different systems, punishment systems involve different levels of detention. Uh, and there have been huge issues around people detained um, by immigration officials and the really horrible conditions that people experience who are being detained there and um, advocates trying to get those people out. Um, there are kids who are detained in foster care away from their families. And coronavirus has meant that parents and children can't have in-person visits in most cases, for example. So you talk about the trauma of being forced uh, away from your family, and then you can't see your family in person. And it's been kind of spotty whether people are given the technology to be able to even do video visits, which like, you know, I have a hard time doing video conference calls with people my age, and I can't imagine trying to do a video call with a two or three-year-old. I mean, it's not, nothing can replace holding your child, you know, and like kids who are in juvenile detention. I mean, it's just across the board, you know, there is no option to social distance in all the different kind of systems. Also the people who work there. I mean, it's not rich white people who are on staff at all these different systems, right? So it's pulling from the same communities of black and brown people who are staffing these places who don't have the money to not go to work, but aren't being given proper equipment to keep themselves safe or the people who are incarcerated or detained or whatever safe as well. So I just think across the board, there are all these issues that reflect our lack of value of people who are involved in these systems. That's good. That's good. Well, thank you for shining light on this issue. Um, We are excited for our next segment where we're going to be interviewing Tony Rosa. He actually was in prison at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. And so we're going to be speaking a little bit to him to find out firsthand the conditions and the experience of incarcerated people during this time. So Lenora, Anton, Wendy, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. Thanks for your work. We are welcome back to City Image. So our next segment is so, so very special. Um, We're sitting down with Tony Rosa, And Tony is a Brooklyn native and works for NYCHA as a caretaker. Tony was incarcerated at Sing Sing Prison during the coronavirus outbreak and was recently released. He has a lot to share with us to shed light on the conditions in prison during COVID-19. And he's also joined with Anton Robinson. So Tony, Anton, thank you both for speaking with us today. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. I'm excited about this. And thank you, Tony, for sharing your wisdom and looking forward to this conversation. Uh, thank you as well for even giving me the opportunity to. Uh, well, honestly, I'm I'm coping still. I'm still adjusting, you know, to uh, society, societal norms. You know, it's a little different now because of what we're experiencing with the COVID-19 pandemic. But in a way, it's actually helping me adjust because it allows me to take things slowly and, I, you know, and take things day by day. Just recently being released from prison, uh, I'm used to being isolated. With this pandemic that I'm at, that we actually experiencing now, it's it's 
with no one being outside, you know, the trains not being uh, crowded, only essential workers actually being out. It's actually helping me adjust more. Oh, I was just going to ask if you could sort of elaborate on um, what the conditions were when you were in custody uh, for, for many people who don't know what it feels like. In my experience being incarcerated, it's, uh, it's not as, you, as, as we would see on television. It's not something that, you know, we can watch episodes of and get a, a glance of what's actually happening and the experiments. It's totally different. You know, um, New York State Prison is very uh, secretive. It's not something that's, that's transparent. You know, a lot of things that happen in prison, the operations of, of uh, prison administrators and how things are conducted, that's really secret from the public. Just a typical day in prison is just, you know, waking up in the morning, uh, waking up for the count, which, if the, you know, the count is where you have to be up where correction staff actually v- visually sees you, sees you alive. And, um, you know, going to your programs, uh, 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 you know, your recreation. If you have a job, you go to your job. We're, we're not so congested. You understand? Prison is like to keep you separated from others. Um, right. If you're in one housing block, you stay with that housing block. If you're in a different housing block, you stay with that housing block. Um, there's not much interaction, you know, in um, in the prison system, you know. But it's a typical day is just, you know, waking up, going, you know, washing up, going to chow, which is, you know, you eat your breakfast, and going to your programs, your daily activities, whether it's program recreation, you know, whether you're, you know, you're a porter in the block. So there's different things, you know, activities that actually, you know, as prisoners that we can actually do. Did you see that start to change with the coronavirus? Not necessarily, not in the beginning. Um, I think um, on the onset when coronavirus, during the times it was being viewed on the, through the media, Sing Sing was operating still on a normal basis. Nothing really changed. It was only until maybe maybe the beginning of March. You know, uh, March 16th is actually, I could record the actual date, is when they started issuing out memorandums to the prison population, informing them about COVID-19, uh, safety practices, um, but that was the actual day that they suspended the visits. You know, they suspended it from March 16th to like April 16th, where we, you know, um, our visitation privileges were temporarily suspended because of coronavirus. The, you know, from that day on, that's when we started seeing a little change in the operation of the prison system, meaning that programs started, can- they, you know, they started canceling programs. Uh, they started canceling religious services. And the only thing they would actually run would be recreation and law library. So those are like the only two programs that were being actually ran at Sing Sing after March 16th will be law library and recreation. You know, the gymnasium was closed. They gave you more access to phones. You know, we would use our tablets to communicate with family members and, you know, regular correspondence. There was nothing really changed. As far as staff is concerned, you know, like we wouldn't see staff wearing masks. You know, they always wear latex gloves. That was just a protocol, wearing latex gloves. But, mm-hmm. you know, when the coronavirus was actually hitting hard in New York State and, you know, we had positive results being uh, uh, recorded in, in prison system, nothing really changed. You know, things were still the same besides the canceling of the programs. You know, um, if someone reported being sick, then there would be precautionary measures taken. You know, staff will report to that individual cell location they will have masks, they will have gloves, and they will escort an individual to the hospital to find out what's wrong. And if the individual, in fact, had symptoms, whether they were flu symptoms or whatever, they would be admitted to the infirmary for further diagnosis, you know, with no testing and stuff like that. 
Beyond the people who were sick, were there any resources for the other inmates to protect themselves from coronavirus? No, we had none. We had none. Um, the ironic thing is this, you know, there's this six feet, keep six feet distance, you know, social distancing. And we had no protective, you know, prisoners had no protective gear. You know, they would tell you, you know, wash your hands, stay six feet away. But you really can't. When they run chow, it's impossible to stand six feet away because you're bunched up together. Mm-hmm. You know, when they run the mess hall and you're in the, you're in the, you're in the dining room in the mess hall, you can't, it's, it's, it's like the, the prison policy conflicted with the policy for the coronavirus to some extent, you know, because the way they run things, you know, when you, when you run in yard, you're running a group of 40 people at the same, at one time to the yard. So there's no social distance in there. There's no six feet distance from one another. Um, we weren't allowed to wear a mask. We weren't allowed to have hand sanitizer, you know, and um, I do recall that, um, you know, the governor Cuomo actually, uh, where, you know, Callcraft prisoners, you know, work for Callcraft were, were making hand sanitizer and it was being distributed around, uh, around agencies, New York State agencies. And the prison had it, but it wasn't being distributed. There were no hand sanitizer stations for us to use to wash our hands. You know, so as far as prisoners are concerned, there was no real protective measures that we can actually take. We learned from the news media mm-hmm. what was going on, really. You know, and, and so there was really nothing that us as prisoners we can really do to protect ourselves. Were those concerns raised by any of the people that were in the prison? Yes. Well, um, there's this thing called the ILC. It's called the Inmate Liaison Committee. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a group of inmates who get selected by the inmate population. And what they do is they, they address concerns to the administration regarding issues with the prison population. So mm-hmm. um, the Inmate Liaison Committee, the ILC, they brought... You know, they, they brought the concerns of the population to the administration about, you know, the coronavirus pandemic was being witnessed through the news media. And the administration would take certain things in consideration. But I guess, in my opinion, the way prison is structured, the way prison is ran, from a security standpoint, there really wasn't much that the inmate liaison committee could do to make any type of changes for the administrators to protect us from being affected with the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we, we, we were more concerned about staff bringing in the virus as opposed to our families. Mm. Because here it is that you cancel visitation with our families, but yet you still have staff that come in and out the facility. You know, you got staff that come in sick. I've actually witnessed several correctional officers that were actually sick, whether they were coughing, had sore throats, and... We don't know if they were getting temperature checks, you know, during the processing when they were coming in. We don't know this, you know, because these, these are areas that we are not subjected to. You know, we, we, we don't have access to these areas where they process staff coming in. So we were more concerned with staff bringing the virus in as opposed to our families. Mm. You know, so, you know, and, and there were times when individuals were getting sick but had, that had flu-like symptoms. Mm-hmm. Whether, they, whether they were positive for coronavirus, I, I, I don't know. You know, because if an individual gets sick, they quarantine them and put them in, you know, they put them in the infirmary. So we no, we no longer have access to that individual. On your end, what, what was that experience like for you personally once you realized that this virus was spreading, that it was highly contagious? You know, what was, what was that experience like? What, what were you feeling once this all started to develop? 
first I was concerned. I was more concerned to want to know more about the virus, to know more how the virus is, 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 is contagious. How we, how, how would we consume it? You know, how would we contract it? Mm -hmm. Because really that wasn't being educated to us. You know, there was real, there was no education from the medical department to tell us, you know, how to, how, how can we stay away from contracting the virus? For myself, I was more concerned because as I was approaching my release date, I, I, I realized through the news media that this was really, this pandemic was getting worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So my thing was like, wow, am I still going to get released on my release date? Will this affect my release uh, date? Yeah. You understand? So it's like, it, you know, it was a learning experience. I was concerned, but I was also, to some degree, I was also afraid because I said, well, if I contract this virus and there's no treatment for it, you know, it's like, how, how would I treat myself? You know, and or how will others treat themselves if they were con- to contract this virus? Mm-hmm. You know, so it was more being concerned, being afraid, but also I wanted to be informative because I wanted more information on it that the prison administration was not providing. The only information, education we got was from the news media mm. because we had televisions in ourselves. Wow. So by having televisions, that was our education, you know, not, not the prison administration. You know, so it was it was scary. I knew a lot of guys that were nervous, were afraid, were taking things serious, that they didn't want to be around nobody. There were no handshakes. There were no, you know, everybody, you know, try to, as, as inmates, we try to do what we can in the, in the circumstances that, you know, the, the, in, how, in, in the prisons and how we live. Mm. So we try to do what we can to protect ourselves. But we really couldn't rely on the prison administrators because, you know, it, they, you know, they, they just didn't have no concern for how, you know, they didn't have no concern, no concern for us. Mm. You know, the only time, and in my opinion, that Sing Sing administration took this seriously is when positive results started affecting prison staff. When prison staff started becoming positive with coronavirus and other prisoners started becoming positive with coronavirus and you see that it was hitting home, that's when they started taking things seriously. But you really, there was no mask being worn. You'll see the depot programs, the superintendent. You'll see all these administrators walking around the prison. There were no masks being worn. There were no gloves being worn. So it was, it was like a regular, a regular day in prison, you know? Mm-hmm. So as this was all developing, was your family or the family of any other inmates given information on the well-being of the inmates? No. The only information our families were being given is the information we provided through texting, through phone calls and through mail, regular correspondence, because we had no visits. So whatever information that we provided to our families is the information that our families had. They were not provided no information from prison administrators. So Tony, you know? I have a question like, was there was never any transparency from the from the prison administration to say, like, oh, this person tested positive, or we have this number of people that are positive in the facility right now, or it just wasn't addressed? No, no. Well, there was no transparency with that. So the only time that that we as prisoners found out was through hearsay, really. We never really actually knew mm. who was positive. Like, we put one and one together. We seen, okay, well, hold on. This officer hasn't been to work for a while. This officer hasn't been to work for a while. And then we hear from other staff that, oh, yeah, that, that officer got sick. That officer got sick. Or this inmate got sick. So we actually knew through hearsay not actually witnessing unless we actually seen somebody being escorted out. Because there were times where we seen prisoners being escorted out with staff 
and they never came back. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were there were times when other individuals, other prisoners seen staff being escorted out and didn't come back. So there was real, there was, there was no real transparency because they never let us know. They didn't tell us who was who tested positive, who had it. That was more secretive than anything else. Mm. You know, and I guess I, I don't know why. Maybe it was they didn't want to create a pandemic within the prison system. But you know, it, it, you can't stop that from happening because it's gonna na- it's gonna naturally occur. You know, because once you know what's in the secret is gonna actually come out in the light anyway. Anton, I'd love for you to jump in. How does this sound along with the other things that you've been hearing from other jails and prisons? One of the things that stands out to me is is the lack of information. You know, without I don't work for the Department of Correction, you know, so not making a, a specific co- comment about their actions. But I certainly think it's important for not only people who are in custody to understand what their their options are, right? To understand um, what type of treatment would uh, they would receive if they need uh, treatment, but also to for their family members to have some sense that that their loved ones are being taken care of while in custody. And so, for me, and I think Tony mentioned a really good point. You know, sort of that it. Some of the the strategies, some of the response may have been to maintain some level of control, but but or, or who knows what that that you know the real reason for for that method uh, was. But but the important part is this: that people need information, particularly in times when yeah. we are afraid. We're all afraid, right? We're all we don't know what's going on, and you can right. only imagine. You don't have to imagine because we got Tony, but you can only imagine the climate inside of jails and prisons when you don't have much information about the coronavirus. You don't know a lot about how it impacts people at this stage, and you don't know your risk level for it. Uh, so transparency is huge in my book, and that's something that I've been rallying for as an advocate um, and certainly something just generally that I've heard uh, with reference to people who are in custody. I, I, I totally agree with what Antoine said. Antoine said um, the transparency thing is an important factor in being informed, the information. A lot of it, like, you know, like I previously said, the information that we received was basically from the news media. Whether we watch CNN, uh, PIX11 News, ABC News, NBC, that's, where informa- that's the information we received. That's how we educated ourselves in the prison system. Mm. And um, a lot of us were concerned. A lot of us were afraid. I didn't get to see how serious this was until I got released. It was when I got released from prison that I actually was watching CUNY, CUNY TV News. Mm-hmm. And I was watching um, Democracy Now. And um, on that episode of Democracy Now, they were talking about Sing Sing. And mm. they were talking about a prisoner who died from the coronavirus that I actually knew and worked with in the law library. Um, his name was uh, Wong Mascaro. And I didn't know that he tested positive for coronavirus, and I didn't know that he passed away as a result of coronavirus. It was only until I watched Democracy Now! and I, and I seen uh, uh, people advocating for better conditions in prison that he actually passed away from it. 
and he was a he was a Colombian immigrant that I knew that I worked in a law library with. Wow. You know, um, he worked in a law library with me, and and just for me, just leaving prison and seeing that on the news that he tested positive and he died as a result of that, really like it hit home. It hit home for me because I'm like, I just left there. I was just with this man, you know, because as I might, you know, law library was still running during this, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then coming home to see the news and see that he passed away as a result of that, it, it hit home with me, you know, it really like, like, wow, like, you know, like, could this be, a, could, could have this been avoided? Like, if he tested positive, how many other prisoners mm. are positive with this that we don't know? You know, like, asymptomatic, being asymptomatic. We all know through Governor Cuomo's speeches and Mayor de Blasio's speeches that there are individuals that can be asymptomatic to this virus. Walk around, don't have no symptoms, and will transfer the virus off to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but, you know, have one, one prisoner being affected can lead to thousands of prisoners being affected. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so it's, 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 it's scary. It's, it's a scary situation, you know, because the lack of information, you know, and information is power. You know, with information, you can, you learn more. You, you, you know how to protect yourself. You, you know about changing your, your, your living pattern. But it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's scary. It's, you know, I'm learning from this. It's, it's a scary situation, you know, especially coming home from it. Yeah. You know, I'm coming home and I'm like, it's serious. You know, you can't get inside certain uh, uh, stores without wearing a mask. You got to have gloves. You got to right. protect yourself, you know. Not only protect yourself, but you got to, you know, if you're living with a family, you know, I have children, I have grandchildren. I'm, you know, I get afraid, you know, that maybe I could become asymptomatic. Maybe I am. And I can transfer this off to my children or grandchildren, you know. So it, it's, it's a learning experience, but it's also, it's a scary situation, you know, Andy? yeah. And I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, beyond just the implications of knowing that, you know, he was positive and, and interacting with people. I mean, I'm, I'm, I imagine that's really hard to find out that someone that you were working with uh, yeah. you know, passed away and, and you had to find out on the news. And so, um, yeah, so we're, you know, we're all sorry for that. You know, especially yeah. when, you know, an individual like he, he's being that he's from Columbia, he really has no family in New York State, you understand? So there's really yeah. no one to advocate for him, you know, there were people out there advocating with signs that I that I seen on the television, but I'm like, like, is this message really being put out? You know, as far as protecting everyone, all of us as New Yorkers, you know, whether you're in prison, you're not in prison, whether you're a citizen of New York, it's just being protected. The more you know, the more information we have, the better we can work around this and, and overcome this. You know, and one thing about prison, there's nothing transparent about prison. You know, what goes on in there, you won't know until you're actually in there. Or you have someone in there letting you giving you the information about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Tony, can I ask you outside of the transparency piece, what do you think administrators could do, or I, I was going to say could have done, but what do you think they could do given that this emergency still exists for many people who are still in custody? Well, I think that what they can do is um, be more humane. Be more humane. Understand that we all human beings, regardless what you're in prison for, what you have done, just be more humane, knowing that we are all humans. We bleed alike. You know, we all have an expiration date. You know, just just care, have concern. 
You know, it's, it, it goes beyond a business. You know, it's, it's beyond running a prison. It's being, you know, we all human beings. You know, when you make your rounds, speak to, your, speak to the prisoners, speak to your population. You know, there's resources that are not being utilized in prison that can help. You know, they have, being that we all had televisions, they have TV channels that just give you uh, information. They can utilize that just informing you, you know, giving little skits. Medical department, you know, this is a medical issue. Mm -hmm. Why hasn't the medical department in the prison system stepped up to educate the prison population? There was not one time since me being in prison in Sing Sing that medical department said anything about the coronavirus. It was the memorandums that were coming out were coming out from Albany Central Office. They were not Sing Sing memorandums. Mm. There were memorandums from Albany from the commissioner, the acting commissioner, basically to the facility, instructing the facility on what to do. So these are the memos that were issued. They were not internal memos from Sing Sing. You know, the medical department should have stepped up and, and should have educated themselves so they could educate the prison population. You know, and, and that's something that's lacking. That's lacking. And can I ask you too, Tony, about your transition from Sing Sing to the community? What resources or help were you given on your way back into and your way out of Sing Sing? I'll say it that way. The resources right now are limited, have been limited for me because of what we're experiencing now with this coronavirus pandemic. But one of the resources that I was um, fortunate to have was with, my, with Hudson Link. Hudson Link for Higher Education in Prison. That is a, a college program that I was enrolled in while at Sing Sing, where I've obtained my associates. I'm working towards my bachelor's. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, they, they were actually closed. Um, the Hudson Link office is right in Austin in New York. But what happened was um, the executive director, Sean Pico, who I give thanks to and I give a shout out to, he um, made sure somebody was available in that Hudson Link office. To provide, me with, to provide me with a laptop, provide me with some toiletries, provide me with a business suit, you know, and, and whatever else I needed. That's great. So they put, you know, those are the only resources that I actually had uh, upon my immediate release from prison. The uh, other organizations, everything is, everything is closed right now. So there is, no, there is really no resources that I, that I can benefit from at the, t- at the present time. So, you know, through Hudson Link, I was able to, you know, get my business attire, uh, get a laptop. You know, it's just the basic things that I needed to, 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 have, a, to have a stepping stone. And um, so I was fortunate to have a job, to get a job. I just got a job. Uh, my second week out, I was able to uh, seek employment. Uh, it's Amazing. a seasonal. Yes, it's, and especially now when it's time where they're laying people off. Here it is, I'm coming from prison and I, got, I, got, and I was able, fortunately, to get a city job working for NYCHA. So, um um, I, I appreciate that. I'm, you know, I have, uh, you don't know how it feels to really come out in this pandemic that I'm experiencing to really work and, and, and have a seasonal job where I can provide not only for myself, but provide for my family and hopefully right. give inspiration to other people, you know? So it, it's, it's, I'm still learning. It's still this transitional phase for me, but I'm taking everything day by day. I'm taking it slow. I'm not rushing it. And I'm taking it day by day. If I can... If I can work in prison for eight to 16 hours, you know, making a, what, 25 cents an hour, because that's like the top grade, you understand? And the law library is a paralegal. I don't have a problem working, doing anything in, in, in society, you know, whether it was McDonald's, anything. 
But I was fortunate to, you know, to link up and get a city job, which actually yeah. will become permanent towards the end of the year. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations yes. on that. Thank and, you so much. And to that point, we could we could talk a lot about the 25 cent an hour thing. I feel like that's a, an entirely different episode. But Yes, it uh, is. It is, man. It is. It's sad. <laughs> it's sad. Prison labor, it's, it's, oh, man, it's ridiculous. Reminds you of slavery, you know, straight up and down. We yeah, that's a part of the conversation. It's heartbreaking to know that people who are valued enough to make things that we all need are being paid nothing uh, for those things. It, it is heartbreaking. It is wrong, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, especially in this economy when everything is going up, prices are going up in prison like they are in society, but yet the wages don't go up. So it's really hard to even to even have the basics. You know, it's really yep. hard. Tony, yeah. I also want to say thank you. Like to um, you mentioned, like, is this issue even, you know, being put out? Like people are people actually being aware? And in honesty, they're not. But I think like having this platform and having someone like you come on and talk about your truth, like I know in the Bible it says, remember those in prison as if you're in prison with them. And you're, you know, sharing your story and us being able to talk about it like that is giving people an opportunity to actually remember those in prison and 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 to think about the issue from another light. Like I know with coronavirus, like we've all been focused on, you know, how can I personally keep myself safe or the things that we're seeing on a day to day basis. But if we remember that there are, you know, vulnerable populations of people that extend beyond what we see, like that is bringing light to the issue and helping yes. people to be more aware. So thank you. You're welcome. And and this this is, you know, like what, what you and Andy and, and Anton is actually doing is this is helping bring in light. This right, what's going on right now, it's helping to bring the light for the people that don't know what's really going on. We, we hear different things about the conditions inside of jails and prisons. And a lot of, you know, conversation has been about the fact that they're close quarters and some people have even called being in custody sort of being a Petri dish for, for the coronavirus. Can you shed a little bit of light on the, the actual conditions inside of Sing Sing might look like now? If I was to look at Sing Sing based on a lot of the other facilities I've been to upstate, Sing Sing is a dirty facility. It's, it's dirty. The ventilation systems are bad. They have thousands of porters that actually work. But it, it's, it's, it's a dirty prison. The, the environment is dirty. The, it's it's you can, you can compare Sing Sing like being on Rikers Island to some degree. You got a bunch of city employees that work there. You got a bunch of city prisoners that are housed there. It's just that it's, the conditions are inhumane because we have poor ventilation systems. It's hard to get showers. Under the moral standards, under Doc's policy, we allow three showers a week, right? That's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But yet, when they run these bathhouse runs, bathhouses where we all, we got to line up 40 at a time. We go to an area where there's a bunch of shower heads, right? But yet, there's no hot water. So you're forced to take cold showers. And then sometimes, when they don't even want to run the bathhouse because there's no hot water, you can't take a shower on the housing block. Mind you, there are showers in each housing unit on each gallery. But yet, we are prohibited from using that because we have to use the bathhouse. You know? So it's, it's really hard. We have, to, we have this thing called, um, uh, 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 we take bird baths in our cell. 
that's actually you fill up your bucket or you use your sink with a rag and you wash up with soap in your rag with water. You know, this is what we have to do really on a daily basis to actually keep our hygiene. Besides the, you know, uh, the ventilation system, you know, you have, we have windows that with screens that don't, that, you know, you, they don't push no air in. You got a thousand birds flying around, you know, and they, these birds, they defecate and, you know, bird defecation is, is, is back. You know, it's, it's, it's no good. It's no good to breathe that in. You know, you're breathing in, you got dust flying around, you got bird defecation, you know, uh, uh, and whatever else is in the air, you know, that, that we actually have to inhale. You know, I've, I've witnessed in my 26 years of being in prison, I've, I've actually seen a lot of people die from having cancer, having being infected with H. pylori that becomes cancerous. We really need, as a society, and also as a government, to really practice what we preach, you know, we put out policies and procedures and directives saying what we what what's supposed to be done, what we're supposed to follow. But these things are not being put into action. You know, the only time it's being put into action is when you want to oppress prisoners, you want to oppress inmates. You know, so we need to really be more conscious and, and health conscious, you know, especially in the prison system. You know, there's 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 you know. Every year, money is being allocated for certain things. That money should be allocated for what it's being for what it's needed for. Mm. You know, not being railroaded or not being put somewhere else. It's 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 scared. My 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 thing was I was afraid of dying in prison. I was afraid that I would get sick because I'm asthmatic. I have allergies, and that I would contract something while being in prison. And that was that was something that was always on my mind, and I was afraid of that. You know, it's hard to eat healthy in prison. It's hard to eat right. You know, the food that we get is pre-cooked food. It's food that's stored for months, maybe years. We get it. They heat it up. They give it to us. It's just a sad thing. It, it, like I said, it's, you don't know until you really experience this. You have to really experience this, you know, not just for one day. I'm talking about experience it like I have. You know, there's individuals that have been in prison longer than what I've served. You got guys in there 40, 50, 60 years, you know. Only I, I did 26 years, first offense. I didn't have no prior history. This was all new to me. So to experience this, it, it was a shock. It was like a cultural shock, you know. And it made me like, it made me think like, look, I have to care about myself because why? No one else is going to care about me. The government is not going to care about me. The administrators are not going to care about me. I have to care about myself. You know, and, and, and doing that is being conscious of eating right. You know, I have to buy water because the water in the prison system is bad. You know, you put, we put water in a bottle. The next day you smell a water, it smells terrible. And this is what we have to drink. You know, so we have to actually buy water with the little money that we make. We have to buy our necessities because it's not being provided. Mm. There have been times where I've caught certain bacterial infections because of certain, you know, because of the water, because of the food. But, you know, but I, you know, and I was fortunate to be, you know, to evaluate myself and, and, and listen to my body and I caught it where I was able to get treatment for it. You know, like I, I came positive with H. pylori. H. pylori, you can get affected with that through, you know, through various reasons, you know, through spicy food, dirty food, dirty water. 
anything that has contamination with with um 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 uh, uh you know with sewage you know so I, I i i was positive with that and i didn't know until i got to sing sing i was actually positive with that when i left southport correctional facility southport neglected to tell me that i was positive when they took my test and when i got to sing sing they told me and i was treated you know i was treated with an antibiotic for 10 days with Prolisec for old stomach ulcer, and you know it, it it went away. And you know I still feel the symptoms here and there, but I always get tested. I take it upon myself to go to medical, request a blood test, request a stool sample, so I know what's going on with me, with my body. Mm. Because if you don't take these, if if you don't take the initiative to know yourself and and protect yourself, you know it, you just you just fade away in prison. Mm. You know it's. It's it's sad. It's I don't I don't I wouldn't know, you know, it's scary. Like I said, it's scary, it's sad. And for the listeners, it's like, you know, yeah, we have individuals that commit crime. And the consequence of crime is punishment. This is why we have crime and punishment. Prison is punishment, but also besides prison, we're also human beings. We breathe, we eat. We bleed, we all, you know, we are all the same. And there's just a, a, a superiority thing where if you're an inmate, you're a prisoner, you get treated like an animal. Mm. And that's, that's, that's the stigma. That's, that's how it is. You get treated like an animal. You don't, you know, you got, you know, literally animals get treated better than prisoners. Mm. You know, dogs eat better than prisoners. You know, and, and it's just, it's, it's sad, you know, it's just because there's no accountability. The accountability is not there. From the hierarchy up all the way down, there's no accountability. Mm. You know, there's, you know, there's no one, everyone wants to point fingers, but no one wants to take the accountability. No one wants to take the blame. I, I don't know how much, much more I can say that it's sad, mm-hmm. but it really, it really is. I feel for the people that I left behind because... They have no voice. Yeah. You understand? They have no voice. Yes, we have tablets. They were given tablets so we could send emails out. But these emails, they get screened. You know, if, they, if the administrators don't approve what's being, what's being sent out, they're not going to send it out. Mm-hmm. So everything still is monitored. Whether, you know, we, yes, we have tab, inmates have tablets, but what you say is still being monitored. And if they feel that what your message is a threat, they're not going to send it out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the message is not a threat. It's just informing your family, informing the public of what you're experiencing. Well, that's why we're so grateful to have you speak. You know, you're using your voice in an extremely powerful way. And those inmates that you're talking about that, that you've, you've left behind, like you're their voice right now, you know, as you, as you carry this message and bring awareness to what exactly is going on. And I speak for all of us when I say thank you. You know, you're, you're really stewarding your voice and using it in such a powerful way. And it's amazing. So, so thank you, Tony. You're welcome. You're welcome. You, you know. Tony, what would you say to your friends who are still in custody? What advice would you give them and their family members? Stay mentally strong. Stay focused. If I can be used to be their voice, I'm going to be their voice. If I can be used to express their cries, their pain, 
And that, that, then that's what I'm going to do. You know, I want them to hang in there. You know, I want them to stay strong, to continue to educate themselves, to do right. It, it's just, edu- just educate yourself, be informative, you know, use your time wisely. Don't let the time do you. And, and, and you know, for the brothers, that I, a lot of the brothers that I left in the law library who are very intelligent, you know, they doing what they can. And these are the guys that's actually helping and educating the other prisoners. Mm. You know, the yeah. college course that we got going on at Hudson Link, they, they, they are asset. We all group, you know, they, we alumni that we all group up and we get together. And these like, those are like the brains in the prison system. You understand? And, and we have to utilize that. We have to come together, utilize that to educate one another. Because everyone knows what's not happening. Yeah. If we all agree with that, we need transparency, then let's focus on making that transparency. Mm. Because when there's transparency, there's more accountability. Because no one yeah. wants to be put in the spotlight. No one wants to be questioned. Especially when you're, when you're a government official, you're an administrator. No. You know, so we need transparency. We need more of shedding light to the public of what's going on in the secret. Mm. You know, what's going on behind these walls. You know, so we can try to advocate and make change. Go to our assembly members. Go to our council members and make these changes. Advocate for these changes. So, I, you know, I just want the brothers and the sisters to hang in there. You know, stay mentally strong and take care of yourself because no one else is going to do it for you but you. Mm. And if I can be utilized as a vessel, then that's what I'm here for. You know, and that's why I want to appreciate Andy, Anton. I want to appreciate your cast for just allowing this to take place. Because I, this is something that I had a passion for. I, you know, I, I, had, I spoke plenty of times to, to Wendy, to Chelsea, uh, uh, to my professors and about what I wanted to do. Mm. And you giving me the opportunity to do it. And I appreciate it very much. We appreciate you, Tony. Yeah, on behalf of the city and this community, we thank you. Man, you're welcome. You're very much welcome. Anytime, anytime. You know, what I could do is just speak about my experience and what I went through and what I seen others go through. 